today I'm talking with Paul Werner, who is at Stanford. Paul has done some pretty interesting stuff, um, including in the startup world, but also some strong opinions on, on how to help some of the developing countries. And so, um, Paul, thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Maybe could you tell us a little bit about your background and, and what you did before you uh, got onto your current track? Yeah. In my professional career, there's really three distinct phases. There was a pure research academic career that was trying to understand the technological change within the context of the broad trends of economic growth. That was very mathematical, very formal, very abstract, trying to deal with the tension between diminishing returns, which is the main focus in economics, and the reality of accelerating growth. That's that's uh, 1.0. 2.0 was I went out and started a startup company that was trying to deliver better teaching materials to people who teach economics, stuff I started to, to sort of develop for myself. And then I did a startup company to commercialize that, ran it for seven years, sold it. 3.0 now is coming back to these questions about economic growth, but thinking not about what will speed up growth in the leading countries of the world, but what could accelerate the process of catch-up growth in countries like Haiti or China? And how could you make growth in Haiti look more like growth in China? Now, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to why you've, you've taken this path. I mean, as a, if you're doing research and thinking these kinds of thoughts, aren't you supposed to just stay in an ivory tower? You don't exactly go out and, like, build a startup and sell it. One, uh, you know, I'm a kind of a restless guy. I get I get bored if I just do too much of the, uh, the same thing. Uh, two, I think there's a very healthy interplay between the real world and the, the research world. And people who just live in the ivory tower end up not influencing the real world and I think they often end up not even doing good, uh, good pure research. So I think the the variety of exposures, the variety of challenges is actually both. It's much more fun, much more challenging, and makes me a better, uh, better scientist. So when you, you did your startup, I mean, it was a real startup. You, you had a, it was a, it was an internet startup. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Um, we we got up to uh, well, 40 employees by the time I, I sold it, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting, you know, management challenge and technological challenge as well as you know teaching challenge the goal was just to give the people who teach economics at the university and college level tools to do their their jobs uh, better and how was the sale I mean is there a reason why you're not off on a beach somewhere well I, I think I am off on a beach somewhere I mean I, I'm, I'm now attacking I think the most interesting and exciting challenge in the world today which is bringing you know the the billions of people at the bottom of the income distribution up rapidly to the levels that we all take for granted, and uh, also in the process, helping to determine the pattern of urbanization, which we're going to establish in this century. And then once we do it, we're going to live with it. Humans are going to live with it forever. So uh, I, I, I can't think of a better way to, uh, once you get some freedom from a successful startup, I can't think of a better way to spend my time. Very cool. Okay. Now, I, the reason Paul is here is I read a, an absolutely amazing article, and in fact, I'll have to link to it, in The Atlantic about charter cities. And I was absolutely blown away because obviously living in the in the Dominican Republic for nine years, I've been over to Haiti a bunch of times, dealt with the earthquake, um, it's impacted a lot of things in the Caribbean. Um, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about poverty from a country close by, and the the, the, the I mean the DR is impacted a lot by what happens in Haiti. And what you what you wrote made a lot of sense, and I'm really maybe you can just well firstly congratulations on, on being I, I guess you didn't write the article, you were featured in the article, but congratulations on it, and maybe. Share some of those ideas and, and tell us a little bit where you, you, you head back on that. Sure. Well, let me start with a kind of a background perspective that will be of interest to your audience. I think the process of creating a startup is a very powerful dynamic 
for encouraging change. If you thought about trying to improve the or improve productivity in the retailing industry, and the only mechanism we had for doing that was trying to get Sears or Montgomery Wards to improve the way they had done things, progress in retailing would have been much slower than if we could have startups like Walmart and Target that enter and you know completely transform retailing. I think that same dynamic could help transform larger groups of people, like all the people who are stuck in Haiti or all the people who are stuck in many countries where things are not working well right now. I think that same kind of dynamic of creating a startup and making a big leap forward is is available to us. And the, the Charter City is the practical mechanism for creating this kind of jurisdictional or higher level startup analogous to the uh, the firm startup. Okay, so you're probably thinking, okay, now, all right, so give us the practical details. What would this mean? In practice, what this means is there are some countries that are willing to put forward pieces of land big enough to build uh, a city like Hong Kong, 1,000 square kilometers, totally unoccupied land on a coastline someplace. There are countries that are ready to contribute this. There are some other countries that are willing to say, okay, we'll help establish a governance structure in this new zone, then we'll establish a charter, hence the name Charter City. It's a charter or constitution that says if you're a resident, a worker who comes to this city, if you're an employer who comes to the city, if you're an infrastructure investor who comes and helps build this city, here's the rules that will apply in this place. And these partner countries that have well-established legal systems can enforce those rules and make a credible commitment to people like the infrastructure investors who are really very vulnerable because often when you make an infrastructure investment someplace, your rights are not respected. So this is a very practical proposal for building entirely new cities in parts of the world which right now don't have credible judiciaries, but which could leverage judiciaries from other parts of the world and to quickly build places that could look like Shenzhen in China, which grew from essentially nothing to you know more than 10 million people in the space of just uh, 20 years. China can sometimes be a pretty extreme example. And 10 million people in China can be like 10,000 people in other countries too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe can I summarize as, as what I understand what you're talking about with uh, with charter cities? And and, and well, this is at least my takeaway from when I when I read the article was that the, the, the concept is if you've got a, a culture because I be, I believe now after thinking about this a lot I believe there are cultures that are fundamentally broken they just don't work um, for whatever reason there's not too many of them. And I actually think that it's almost a thing of like Darwin's natural selection that goes on. And some some cultures survive and continue and, and others don't. And Haiti's one that if, if Haiti had been around 400 years ago, after this big earthquake happened, the DR would have just quietly taken it, taken it over. But now, because there's so much international press, that, we, that that doesn't happen. And so Haiti continues on. And basically, I view it as almost like a tax on the rest of the world. I guess, I guess you know, I'm probably offending people, but... I'm, I'm pretty convinced I'm right on, on some of these things. I, it's nothing against patients. I just think there's something there's something really problematic with the culture there that encourages them to sit back and not work for things. A, it's almost like a, they've had things, too many things given to them, and so they're, they're more conditioned to try and receive handouts rather than, than to try and, and work and be entrepreneurs and, 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 and move forward an entrepreneurial path. So I believe fundamentally that a country like Haiti has to have a culture change. And what I understood from what you wrote about was that one way that the, the culture cha- can be changed is by creating a charter city. That would be a city that's owned by another, either a company or a country on, on some kind of a lease, like a 100-year lease, where that would be then operating independently. It would operate with a new culture, one that's, that's effectively imposed artificially. Then over time, the local people would get the chance to see that, hey, things actually work really well in our local conditions. 
just in this charter city it, and, and start to create some sort of a culture change from that. And I guess uh, yeah. a big example yeah. of that could be Hong Kong and, and China and how much yeah. influence that Hong Kong had on China. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was speaking before about the role of the judiciary, and you've, you've gone, which is correct, which is that this is more than just laws. This has something to do with what I refer to as the norms. But let, let, let's be the president of Brazil. Set up a new set of laws, a new set of rules, but also try and help encourage the development of a new culture based on hard work and individual responsibility and, and entrepreneurship. In principle, you know, that, that could happen. Brazil could set up a legal system, it could invite in infrastructure investors to help build a city. The, the Brazilians could also use the rules there to try and encourage a different kind of set of norms than the norms that prevail in, uh, in Haiti right now. And if you go back to the point I was making about Sears versus Walmart, corporate cultures are sometimes dysfunctional as well. In a way, it's often the case that the problem with the culture is that it was well adapted to a world that existed in the past, but it's not adapted to the world in, in which we live. So Haiti, Haitians face the same problem of culture change that, that Sears or Montgomery Wards faced. If you could create a startup where the most ambitious Haitians can go, where they can live under rules that reward individual effort and protect individual security, then those Haitians can start to build this new kind of culture. As more Haitians move in there, they can get uh, socialized into this new culture, and we can use the startup as a way to change the, the culture in, in Haiti. Because one element, which I'm going to put a little bit more positive spin on than you, but I think we agree on, is, is that cultures can change. It's not that there's something wrong with Haitians, but there is something that's dysfunctional about the norms that prevail in Haiti. And unfortunately, local norms tend to reinforce themselves. We want to create an opportunity for Haitians to change those norms and develop a new set of norms and a new culture, which will work better in today's modern world. Yeah, and you know, I, I thought about that because I debated this a lot with some, some different people online in the DR, and we were talking about, well, can cultures really change? And then one of the examples yeah. that came through was, well, the culture of Germany changed like three times in the last hundred years. You know, the the, the former Soviet Union and communism, and all, all of the culture of China is changing right now, pretty dramatically as well. So. Yeah. Well, that, you know, a good a good example that I like is um, is Hong Kong itself, where corruption was actually just pervasive in Hong Kong up through the early 1970s. And the governor general in Hong Kong actually engineered a change in the culture from pervasive corruption, including a police force that was totally corrupt, to uh, making it now one of the places which is one of the least corrupt police forces and uh, cities in in the world. So. So cultures can change. And before this happened, everyone would have said, oh, you know, gift-giving and corruption, that's just, that's just an integral part of, you know, Confucianism or Chinese culture. You can never change that. But in fact, you know, they, they did change it. So cultures can change. Sometimes you can get a leader like uh, the one who changed the culture within IBM. But a lot of times you can't change a big organization like Sears, but you can create a brand new startup like, uh, like Target. And then once that startup develops this new culture and attracts people to it, you end up changing the culture by creating a whole new, uh, a whole new organization. That's interesting what you say on China. Now, what did, what did they specifically do to, to get rid of corruption? Because the Dominican Republic would surely like enough. There was a combined series of measures that the governor general undertook. But the critical thing to understand is, is that Hong Kong was very unusual in that the governor general was not subject to 
political horse trading. The governor general was kind of like a central bank governor who can just take actions to meet uh, a particular goal. So the kinds of actions that the governor general took were to create an anti-corruption commission where he appointed the head of the commission, and that person reported directly to him, recruited entirely new people to that corruption, anti-corruption commission, separate from the police force, gave them very strong legal powers. They also started a publicity campaign to say, if you're ever asked for a bribe, call this hotline number. It's, it's wrong for you to be asked for a bribe, and we'll go prosecute it uh, aggressively. The, the history of this is a little more complicated, but they, they gave an amnesty for all previous acts of corruption, so that all of their prosecutorial powers were focused on the new acts that might come along, so it suddenly became very risky to commit uh, corrupt acts. They had teaching materials in the schools to teach children that it's wrong to be, uh, to offer, to be asked for a bribe or to pay a bribe. They had special teaching materials for migrants from China who were used to living in cultures where you know, bri bribes were just the, the, the normal thing to do, and to warn them, look, it's very different now in, in Hong Kong. So, and they, took, they, took, they collected public data about the frequency with which people were being asked for bribes, and they published that data and showed initially that it was fairly high, but it came down very quickly. And once people started to see the data, it reinforced for them these other messages they were getting, which is that it's not normal, it's not right for an official to demand a bribe. And uh, within a very short period of time, five years, they completely, I mean, dramatically reduced the, the level of corruption. But again, this was because you had an executive who didn't have to worry about the initial political backlash that this, uh, this provoked. I mean, the police force you know, went on strike and you know, like almost was threatening violence when they first uh, started this program. But uh, the governor general persisted and uh, changed the culture. And that sounds absolutely amazing. I mean, is, is, is that something that can be replicated in other countries? It depends on the strength of the political leadership. If you've got an executive who can move decisively, then uh, it could be it could be replicated. But uh, if you uh, if you're stuck in an equilibrium, say with a a legislature that's paralyzed and you have to do lots of horse trading and there's lots of room for lots of different uh, individuals to veto any kind of change, um, it, yeah, it won't work. Because, I mean, in the Dominican Republic, I don't know, like 10 or 20 years ago, it might have been 20 years ago, there was a leader called Juan Bosch who he, he basically got forced out of office because uh, one, there was a member of his family who was caught for corruption and he stood up and said he, was, he, he forced the guy to be prosecuted. And it just, I, I don't know the, the specifics, maybe you know it better than I do, but he basically ended up losing, losing his hold on the country because of it. it the, the, the idea of, um, you have to recognize that some of the very strong political actors in a democracy may have, a, you know, may have been participants in this kind of corruption. So if you try and attack them directly, if they have enough political power, they'll, they'll stifle uh, your, your attempts to change things. So something like the amnesty, which says, you know, Everything that's happened up till now is water under the bridge. We're not going after that. That's partly a way to undercut political opposition. Mm. There may still be some people who say, well, I'm not going to get prosecuted for my past acts, but I really like being able to make money in this corrupt equilibrium, so I'm going to try and resist it. And the question is, how politically strong is the person who's pushing for the anti-corruption effort as opposed to the interests who will be um, trying to Keep, keep things uh, the way they are. And there what you need is a, a good politician who can mobilize the broad support from all the people who suffer from corruption and bring the power of their wishes to bear 
in opposition to the small numbers of people who benefit from uh, corruption. That is fascinating, because if there's anything that's holding the DR back, it's the amount of corruption, and yeah. I've never yeah. heard anything like we're talking about an amnesty, and that sounds brilliant. Yeah, but but let's go back to this idea of the startup. What, what we're talking about right now is kind of like um, Lou Gerstner comes in and completely transforms IBM. It does happen sometimes, just like the Governor General in Hong Kong, but it's really hard, and you've got to be very strong as a leader and very effective. What's the alternative? Imagine the Dominican Republic said, okay, we're going to create a special zone. We'll just find a part of the country where nobody lives, and we're going to create a new legal regime within this zone where there's a separate prosecutor, separate courts, and if you operate or live within this zone, we're going to follow the law really strictly in this zone. Now, what's the power of this kind of a startup? Well, that doesn't directly threaten any entrenched interest in the rest of the DR, but the people who would really like to run a business honestly would flock to a place where they knew the, the law would, would be enforced. And so then you create this kind of vibrant new startup where everybody sees that there, it's possible to have a place that isn't corrupt and that everybody's better off if they have it. So one of the reasons the startup dynamic is so powerful is it lets you try something new without provoking a head-on confrontation with the entrenched existing interests. I mean, in the DR, there is that sort of stuff, I guess, to a little bit to a degree today with uh, Punta Cana, which is a tourist resort. Bill Clinton goes down there a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the perception is, and I, I well, maybe the perception and the reality is that it, they're managed and run by outside interests, and so Dominicans can come and work there. It is clean and safe and, and, and straightforward, but the money doesn't stay in the country. Like, mm -hmm. If this, if let's say a zone was created elsewhere in the DR where local businesses could go and do this stuff, what's the, the incentive of the outside party to do this, and how would it not become like Punta Cana where the money then is, is taken offshore? Yeah. Yep. Well, first, what's the interest for a country to do this? I, I mentioned Brazil and Haiti because Brazil is actually the country which is maintaining order in Haiti right now anyway. It's Brazilian yeah. troops that are the bulk of the UN force, which is the only thing which is providing any any rule of law in, in Haiti at the moment, and they've been doing this since 2004. So there are countries like Brazil that are willing to do this just because they want to make the world a better place. And my message to the Brazilians would be to say, at the same time that you're trying to work a kind of a Gershner-style you know, turnaround of the whole Haitian society, why don't you think about trying to set up a startup which could demonstrate very clearly to everybody what it could be like to be a Haitian to live someplace where the law is uh, is, is respected. Now, the, the thing that's problematic in Haiti and why I don't think this could actually be done in Haiti is that someone in the Haitian government would have to be able to say, okay, well, we will voluntarily enter into an agreement with you, Brazil. We'll give you this land to create something different. And right now, there's, there's nobody in, in Haiti who's who's able to voluntarily enter into that, that kind of an agreement. But let's just transpose it back to the DR. Suppose the president of the DR really wanted to change the culture in the DR about, about corruption, and he's not strong enough to fight the entrenched interests. He could create a brand new zone, a city-scale zone, create a very different legal system there. But then to speak to your question about, well, who, who benefits one of the things that you'd have to do is make sure that this is a zone that you know any any firm from the Dominican Republic could could move into, 
you know, any firm that's engaged in manufacturing, wants to export, uh, wants to provide services in the DR. Uh, so you make it a place where firms from the Dominican Republic can come, but you also make it a place where foreign firms can come and hire uh, people from the Dominican Republic who right now feel like they have to move to, you know, the U.S. or someplace else to get matched up with a, you know, a firm from, uh, from outside. So you provide employment opportunities for people from uh, the, the DR, and you provide opportunities for existing firms and the startup firms that could happen in the DR but, but aren't happening uh, right now. So all of those things could create a little, you know, a little Hong Kong enclave within, uh, within the, the DR. And just as Hong Kong set a model that ultimately transformed all of China, a modern, vibrant, safe, rule-bound, rule uh, rule-following uh, city in the DR could, could completely change the, the, the culture there. And you know, nobody, you know, nobody said about Hong Kong that, oh, it's, you know, it's, just, it's just kind of foreigners stealing all our money. I mean, the, the, the communist Chinese used to say that back in the, the 50s or something, but, but eventually it just became transparent to everybody that what you had is millions of Chinese who moved to Hong Kong and benefited enormously from both a different system of rules of law, but also the new sets of norms, the new culture that uh, could could develop there. And I don't see any reason why we couldn't do this in the in the DR. And you know, frankly, if you did it in the DR, you could even invite in Haitians to come. Uh, this will this will kill the political appeal within the DR. But you could even invite in Haitians who. You know, given the chance to live someplace where they can work hard and follow the law, do so. I mean, many of them who come to the United States, very hardworking, very productive uh, uh, citizens. So they're just stuck right now in a in an equilibrium with with norms of all the people around them that are holding them back. So, so in general, you're suggesting this is something that could be done in the DR and not necessarily influence Haiti, um, but just the DR thing to help improve sure. the culture in the DR. Is that is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Although, to, to, to be realistic, if you wanted to make a city that was viable as a city these days, a city which could attract, you know, take a bright 21-year-old who's going to start a new business and who's thinking about, you know, should I go do it in Miami? Should I do it in the DR? Should I go, you know, should I go, go to Chile? To, for the DR to be competitive, it's got to be a pretty big city. You know, it's got to have an airport with hubs, you know, as, as a hub that can get you to many, uh, a direct flight to many other places. So if you're going to create a vibrant Hong Kong-like city in the DR, it's got to be pretty big. If you're going to get to that size, you may want to make it a place that people can migrate into from, you know, other parts of the, uh, the Caribbean or uh, Latin America. So, um you could start with a, uh, a new city, which was just attracting people from the DR, but you'd you'd probably grow to a Hong Kong instead of a you know a, a, a Cleveland uh, much more quickly if you uh, if you let people from all over the region uh, come and live and work there. And if it's you know if it's separate from the rest of the DR, you don't have to let migrants come in and be residents or citizens in the rest of the DR, but they could come into this new city scale zone and help you build your own local Hong Kong very quickly. And so what do you think that would end up looking like? How could that, what could that city look like? And what would that impact would that have on the DR and how would that change things in the, in the DR itself? Oh, you know, you could have, you could have the gateway city to the entire Caribbean and uh, important parts of Central America 
uh, even Latin America in the, in the DR if you wanted to. I mean, there's going to be a few hubs around the world that are like New York City, Los Angeles, Paris, uh, Shanghai, Hong Kong. There are going to be a few, a few hub cities like that, and living right next door to one of those is going to be much more valuable than living you know, 500 miles away out in some, some hinterland. So a city like that's going to grow up. And if, you know, if Mexico gets its act together, they might do it in Mexico. Somebody else in Central America might do it. But once this thing tar- starts to take off, it'll be this 10 million person metropolis with a modern airport, modern service sector, you know, an innovative tech sector, um, and, and also an important man- manufacturing sector. So it's not, the question isn't whether this is going to emerge, but it's just a matter of, of where it emerges. And if the DR took the initiative to make sure that it, it emerged you know, right next door to the rest of the DR, right, right on the island, uh, you could suddenly be at the, you know, the center of, of activity instead of uh, off, off in the, the periphery. But you know, if it doesn't emerge in, in, in the DR, it, you know, it'll, it'll, help and it'll happen uh, somewhere else. There's, there's just immense amounts of unoccupied land where a new city could be built. What's, what's waiting is for somebody to take the lead, some political entrepreneur, and say, let's set up this, this land, let's create uh, a legal system and develop a new culture that makes this an attractive place, and then, uh, you know, the people are going to just flood in. What is that? I mean, let's say, because the DR right now has nine, people, 9 million people. So right. if there's a city in a part of the country that's pretty isolated that becomes this, uh, another 10 million people, like, who owns the city? Who runs the city? And what, what's the ramifications on the rest of the DR? Yeah, it could be just like Hong Kong next to southern China. You know, southern China, Guangdong benefited enormously from from the the presence of the you know all the firms in, in in Hong Kong. So you know, the DR could just say, "We'll just give up the land. We don't care, and we'll let somebody else run it because they'll be more credible at attracting everybody to come in there. We just want it to be nearby because if there's going to be a Hong Kong." somewhere in Central America and the Caribbean, it'd be much better for us if it was right next door instead of, you know, uh, two, you know, two airplane legs uh, away from us. So, um, so you know, the, the, the self-interest for the, for the DR would be to just make sure this thing is, is, is close by. Then some of the people who'd go live in this city could be uh, people from the DR. But like I said, I think you could attract people from, you know, all of, uh, if it's like if it's a Spanish-speaking city, you can attract people from all the Spanish countries in uh, uh, Central America and even, even Latin America because all these bright young people are looking for where's the place they can go that's going to be that dynamic, exciting place to start the new firms, uh, you know, build the, build the, new, the new economy. Hmm. So who, I mean, who runs something like this? Is it is it Disney? Is it the U.S.? Is it England? Like, well, it, could, it, it can't be it can't be a corporation because there has to be a legal system and a, a court system that could, uh, you know, send people to jail if they break the law. This is just the reality of a modern city. You can't have order in a city unless somebody enforces the law. You can't trust a private corporation to run jails and lock people up. But uh, you could you could see if, uh, again, take the example of Brazil. Suppose you said to Brazil, you take over this respons- legal responsibility, or maybe maybe it's something that's shared between the president of the DR and the president of, uh, of Brazil. 
But what happens next is really pivotal. What they could do is say, okay, we, and you know, maybe there's there's Canada going to join the deal too, so you don't have a, uh, so you have a, you know, an odd number of people. So the the Prime Minister of Canada, the President of the DR, and the President of Brazil all appoint one person to a board, and this board then votes by majority to appoint somebody who's the executive, who's in charge of running this place, just like the kind of the Governor General was running Hong Kong. Then what you do is you give that executive a very strong mandate, just like you give a central banker. Here are the targets we want you to hit, you know, and, and here's here's your incentives for hitting those targets. Then you give that that individual a lot of discretion to uh, to hit the hit that hit those targets to achieve that mandate. And that strong executive leadership is where fast-growing new startups come from, but it's also where Whole new, uh, whole new jurisdictions could could come from, and when that executive sets up something like the the court system, you know, it could, he you know he or she can hire all the people who moved to the city to staff that court system, but the executive might also call on say the Royal Canadian Mounties. You know, you're you got a stake in this game. Come down and help us set up a police system, or it might call on Hong Kong and say, look, consult with us about how to have a a, a police force which isn't corrupt, or you consult with Singapore. You've, you've been very good at, at building airports and seaports and, you know, managing like desalination to provide fresh water and recycled water. Bring, bring us that kind of expertise. So the, the executive who's in charge of building the city can call on private and governmental expertise from all over the world, but it's, it's very important that that person be able to push forward quickly like an executive in a, in a startup firm. I'm flawed. It sounds absolutely incredible. And what what is amazing about it is it sounds realistic. I, there's got to be there's got to be more that um, I mean, if, if the political guys, I'd love to hear the questions they would ask you. They'd be able to probably think of more things to ask. But everything you, I mean, I've been living in the DR for nine years, and everything you're telling me makes yeah. sense. Well, well, let me give you some of the hurdles because you know, I'm having these conversations with some leaders are, are around the world. It, it is sometimes a hurdle to find an unoccupied piece of coastal land. On the scale of about a thousand square kilometers, you know, 33 by 33 kilometers. Mm-hmm. Um, if if there are a few people who live there, you have to find a way to compensate them to move. Because a critical part of this whole proposal is that if this new executive comes in and says, "Okay, here's a whole new system of rules that are going to apply in this new zone," it has to be the case that nobody is forced to live under those rules. They can opt in, but it's not forced on them. So coming up with the parcel of land is a challenge in some countries. I mean, in India, it's, it's almost impossible to assemble parcels of land this size in India right now because of their, their legal system. So India desperately needs cities, but it's not going to happen in India. Same for, same for Bangladesh. Now, take, uh, you know, take Mexico, for example. Mexico has you know, just enormous amounts of unoccupied land where they could, they could do something like this. So land is one constraint. Uh, another constraint is a, is a political leader who can sell this to his or her people and say, I know this seems it's not good for our pride, but if you think about it, this is actually the best possible thing we could do. We really want to be next, right next door to the, the hub for the whole region. We don't want it off someplace else. So a good local political leader to sell this is important. If you, if you can say in the DR, you know, we can have uh, New York here on the island, that would pretty much steal the deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, if you could just give away the land to have New York next door, 
and you didn't get a single you know, bit of revenue or tax or anything from it, but just the proximity to New York would just completely transform what it was like to, to live in the, uh, in the DR. So that's the kind of the sales pitch the local leader has to come up with. And then the final ingredient, which to be honest is probably the hardest one, is to find the leader like the president of Brazil or the prime minister of Canada who's willing to say, you know, there's nothing in it for us in a selfish sense but we're willing to pitch in and help this thing happen because it'll make the world a better place. And, you know, there are leaders like that um, around the world in the, the rich and well-established countries, but, you know, they have to be able to sell it to their, to their citizens as well. So, you know, the, the critical ingredients now are leaders who have land, who can sell this idea to the local people, and then leaders who have credible institutions and credible, you know, commitment that they could bring to this this new venture who also can sell it to their people and say this would be by far the best thing we could do to make the world a, a better place. I mean, can't that be done just to appeal to their self-interest? I mean, the UK, when it took over Hong Kong, like it got, it got I, I, I don't know what it got, but it must have gotten some stuff out of the deal. They did it for a reason, right? Um, yeah. couldn't, couldn't that sort of self-interest apply as well? If, if you said to the Canadians, look, here's a way we can go make a killing, you know, in terms of a really big profit on a real estate ploy using land from the Dominican Republic, that might motivate the Canadians, but it would totally alienate everybody in the Dominican Republic, okay? Right. So what you have to say to the Canadians is, look, it's in your interest. You, you, you know, the Canada actually tries very hard to encourage economic development in the whole Caribbean basin right now. You're spending a lot of resources and time doing this. Here's a way you could refocus your energies to have much more bang for the buck. And if if the Caribbean grows in terms of its income, then there's going to be more economic opportunities for, you know, Canadian firms and Canadian citizens. And, you know, it'll be a more stable place. There'll be less crime. We'll all be better off. So if you can appeal to Canada's enlightened self-interest, I think they can come in in a way – where people in the Dominican Republic also say, oh, yeah, you know, this is, this is going to be good for all of us. But it, it can't be a too-naked, you know, appeal to self-interest from, you know, the well-established country because then it'll just, it'll just offend the, uh, the local residents. So for people who are reading this that are startup guys, maybe, you know, they've cashed out, they've made $20 million, $50 million, $100 million in their company, um, they might know some political people, but I mean, their, their realm is tech and building companies. Like, what is your? How can they assist? Or, or yeah, well, there there is a website uh, called chartercities.org uh, that you know somebody can Google and they can read a little bit about some of the mechanical issues, some of the practical details, some of the theory about norms and culture and the story of Hong Kong. So, the place you can go learn more. You can also contact me through that um, through that site. And to be honest, the conversations I've had with government officials have all come because somebody knew somebody who introduced me to, to someone in the government. So if, if there are people who um, are listening who have connections you know, in, in a place like Canada or the Dominican Republic or somewhere else in the Caribbean uh, basin, uh, contact me through Charter Cities and, uh, and let's, uh, let's, let's talk. Now, if we get the political agreements set up, when the new city starts to come into being, there's going to be all kinds of traditional entrepreneurial activities for somebody who wants to come in and, you know, I, I want to set up the, you know, I'm going to wire the whole place. I'm going to provide, you know, 
uh, Wi-Fi or you know wide area you know wireless for the you know this this whole city on a completely different business model or you know I'm going to provide the the system so that we can have efficient flow of traffic uh, some IT system which is much better dealing with traffic congestion there would be all kinds of entrepreneurial opportunities in a greed field kind of development like this uh, once it gets up and running but the sequencing is first we got to get the political foundation in place and the governance foundation then you know we turn loose the energies of the the private sector and watch it you know watch it take off fascinating um, is there anything you want to tell us about which you haven't covered I think I think this uh, this covers most of it, it with, with I guess with one exception um, the notion of a city on an unoccupied piece of land with a charter and an executive in charge to develop it quickly that doesn't require a partnership between two countries. So China did this itself with its special economic zones when they were trying to allow foreign firms to come in and create a, a market economy. So there's a version of this idea where, for example, Brazil, the president of Brazil might just take a piece of, you know, and they, he's got immense amounts of unoccupied land, say, let's create this new city, but aim for scale. Let's make it a place where poor people can live and work so we don't make the same mistake we made with Brasilia, you know, they could, they could do something like this entirely within Brazil or entirely within Mexico or, you know, entirely within India if they could, if the government there could ever assemble the, the land. So, so this doesn't necessarily have to be something that involves this partnership of, of multiple countries. So it's a, it's a somewhat broader idea than much of this uh, discussion suggests. The other thing I guess I would say is that if you look back in history, the times when we've seen really important progress for the most disadvantaged people, and progress not just in material terms like economic growth, but progress in terms of dignity and respect and inclusion, that's come at times when there were a lot of startup-like places that were competing to attract those people. So for example, when we had the New World Colonies in North America, and people from Europe were going to the various colonies, and the colonies were competing to attract new residents. Competition between the colonies led to better offers to the migrants who might come there. So if we think of, in this century, building not just one of these charter cities, but you think of dozens of them, or you know, maybe even you know, 100 or more, because you know, several billion people are going to move into cities in this century. If you could create many of these, then what you start to get is progress in material terms and in broader human terms because of competition for for people. So rather than somehow trying to force governments to treat people better, you create competition where governments naturally start treating people better because they want to attract uh, they want to attract more people. And so the competition that could get unleashed between new jurisdictions and existing jurisdictions, I think would be the fastest way to take all the people in the world right now who are just treated just miserably, brutally by the, 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 the societies in which they live. This would be the fastest way to give them um, the kind of life that, that you and I take for granted. I, I feel kind of like I haven't done a good job interviewing you here because I haven't been able to challenge you on this stuff enough, but the reason is that I agree with them as much as what you're saying. It's um, yeah. fantastic stuff. Um, we need to wrap up. So, Paul, thanks so much for taking us on. Good. Well, I, I, you can tell I'm very excited about this idea, so I'm, I'm glad you're uh, willing to, uh, to give me a chance to explain it. Uh -huh.